Welcome to Speak Easy Theology with Chris Green. Welcome back, everyone. David Harvey again with me today, co-hosting Frank Machia. Frank, thanks for coming back. We had already started the conversation, realized we hadn't recorded it. So you're in <laughs> you're in mid-thought. Listeners need no introduction to, to Frank Machia. So pick up right where you were, how evangelicals have kind of incapacitated themselves for thinking about Christianity and nationalism. Exactly. Um, and uh, where I think I'd like to start is what uh, Pannenberg uh, refers to, uh, referring to Dorothy Serle, um, when referring to what uh, he calls uh, Christological totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. And that is where uh, Christ annihilates us in order to uh, cause us to be born anew uh, in attachment to him. And what evangelicals commonly take that to mean is that uh, the former self, with all of its uh, cultural uh, connections and heritage, gets annihilated so that the self now gets defined exclusively in terms of um, a kind of abstract, transcendent understanding of Jesus as Lord. So yeah. that if anyone wants to talk about the significance of, say, their black heritage or a kind of uh, black liberation theology, uh, that is viewed as uh, an, uh, an unorthodox attachment to yeah. the former self mm. uh, that has now been displaced by Christ yeah. and should no longer have any significance. Yeah, which leads to that kind of colorblind mentality. Exactly. Yeah. Which then becomes a mask for incorporating implicitly a kind of um, normalized white understanding of, yeah. of, of now what, who we are in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and that incapacitates us to, to give any significance to how Pentecost becomes hospitable to a colorful diversity of voices and identities that God has created and wishes to sanctify um, in in conformity to Christ without losing any of that uniqueness. And so um, what is often done is uh, they'll take, say, for example, the uh, classic Protestant doctrine of total depravity, that we are sinful through and through, mm-hmm. to say that uh, at the cross we must be in, in total annihilated, yeah. Because we're, we're sinful through and through. There, there, there is nothing here that can be <laughs> rescued. Yeah. So, so our total self must be annihilated because it's all sinful through and through. It must be totally annihilated and we must be totally reborn uh, in the risen Christ. Uh, we can only pass through the crucifixion having laid ourselves down entirely, mm-hmm. uh, considered any uh, cultural uh uh, understanding of of the self uh that's now considered dung uh, referring yeah, to, to be thrown away yeah yeah and uh, so that we could be reborn in Christ so there's this total depravity doctrine that's informing this annihilation of the self mm. uh and then the cross becomes the place where uh we lay ourselves down entirely and 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 bury ourselves as dead uh and so that we could be completely uh, reborn in the image of a transcendent Christ. 
Um, and uh, so uh, w- we could go to Paul momentarily. I think Paul has been misused in the service of this theology. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like the Galatians 2.20 text, I, but not I, but I mm-hmm. kind of thing. There's a dialectic at work there that gets lost. Um, and then that, that text is interpreted to mean uh, the annihilation of the self. And Philippians 3 as well. Well, we'll get to that momentarily. But I want to turn to the apocalypse because I think there is a very tantalizing um, set of references there that just overturns this annihilation of the self and this Christological totalitarianism. Mm. Um, and I'm referring to the, heaven, to, the, to the heavenly liturgy recorded for us in Revelation 5. Hmm. where you have uh, the uh, chorus of praise to the Lamb um, in Revelation 5. And interestingly, and, and this jumped out at me when I was thinking about the atonement in, in the light of Pentecost, um, where it, in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 it says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Hmm. So why would it matter that these people are from every tribe, language, people, and nation Mm -hmm. if that's been annihilated and removed and relegated and, and reduced to insignificance? Yeah, yeah. Why does that? Why mention that? Mm-hmm. Why, mm-hmm. why add that as a qualifier yeah. to these people uh, who Christ has redeemed? The same thing happens in chapter seven, um, verses nine and ten, where again you have this heavenly multitude referred to. Uh, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Uh, here they are in heaven. You would have thought that they had long since left these designations behind. Why yeah. is it significant to mention them again? Yeah. Um, and then you get, I think, the reason for that in chapter 21 where it describes a new heavens and new earth. And you would think that by now, those cultural designations should no longer matter. We're in the new creation. We're in the next next world, right? And yet. And yet, in chapter 21 of Revelation, in the new heaven and new earth, it says of the heavenly city, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, that could only mean that all of these representatives from these peoples yeah. are bringing a, a sanctified version of the best of their own heritages. Yeah that which is noble, that which is good, that which is God-glorifying, at least implicitly, and bringing that into the heavenly city in honor of the Lamb. And so I don't see 
in the apocalypse any room yeah. for uh, an annihilation of the self. Mm-hmm. And it's God-created, God-given uniqueness and cultural heritage. Uh, or this Christological totalitarianism, whereby the self is completely uh, dissolved of you know, of anything unique, anything particularized yeah, and is now attached to a, a, a transcendent figure, Christ figure mm-hmm. who himself has been removed <laughs> from yeah. anything concrete or historically particular. Yeah. That's the Surlay's point, right? That yeah, so, exactly. I, I think this is an interesting connecting point with I'm, I'm working right now, as you know, on a biblical Christology and, she has this fascinating essay that's very, very related, I think, relevant to this point. And she says that whenever Christ is removed from Israel, whenever Christ is abstracted away from Israel's scriptures and Israel's history, then then he becomes an abstraction that it, we can fill in however we like. He, you know, he's, a, he's an outline that we then color in, in whatever ways we prefer. And he's no, he's no longer the Jesus of the gospel, right? He's, yes. a, he's an image we've made. And I, I think Willie Jennings has shown that the root of racism and nationalism and Christian practice and thought has been the what he calls the forgetting of our Gentileness, right? That we we despised we despised our our Jewish hosts, right? We forgot that we were guests at that table, that we had been grafted into the the promise of the fathers that God has made, you know, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, I know Bart has a lot to say about exactly. Israel and the church. I, I'd love to hear you talk about that. And then I want to come back and talk about, I think that there's a there's a movement in evangelicalism led by people like Peter Wagner in which they did away with the annihilationist model, but they, they replaced it with something worse. And I want to, I want to have you comment on that too, but I want to come, I want to stay on this one for just now. How, exactly. how the forgetting of our, our, our Gentileness factors. Now, at least the annihilationist model uh, is cryptically racist, but when you start making it explicitly racist. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It takes the problem to a whole new level. That's exactly. Now you're glorifying the ambiguity in all the wrong ways. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's precisely right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But uh, <laughs> but yes, that's true. I mean, uh, uh, there there was this. Uh, you know, you you get, for example, uh, at during Bart's time in Germany, when you had the Nazis uh, saying Jesus against Judaism. Yeah, yeah. And and they were saying that Jesus, uh, you know, uh, completely demolishes. Uh, the uh, Judaism, the Judaism of his day, and and forsakes it and and judges it harshly, and Bart responded by publicly saying Jesus was a Jew. Yeah, and when he wrote the Barman Declaration in the very first article, he says uh, it's Jesus Christ as testified of in Holy Scripture that we affirm, and everyone knew what he meant by that. Yes, right, Jesus the Jew. Yeah. And 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 so Bart says in the dogmatics that Jesus doesn't just take on abstract flesh. He takes on Jewish flesh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that becomes hospitable to all yeah. peoples. Yes. 
And this is where I think the incarnation and the crucifixion, uh, and I like what James Cone does with this. He says mm-hmm. that uh, you know, G- as Jesus's Jewishness was definitely linked to the fact that he belonged to an occupied people yeah. who were oppressed. And, and that identity is important to any Christology. Yeah. So here Christ in the incarnation and crucifixion opens his embodied life to a vast diversity of others. Mm-hmm. The, cro- the incarnation and the cross, uh, this is why I like to say Christ on the cross is not just the Christ for us, but the Christ with us. Yeah. In other words, the for us does not annihilate us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, it, it doesn't. Yeah, precisely. It doesn't. It he doesn't do away with our humanity. He is for and with us, mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. fellow traveler who goes ahead of us. Yeah, to to open up an exodus for peoples, uh, for all peoples, to find in His self-giving love uh, the means by which their own particularity and uniqueness can be sanctified. Yeah. And uh and 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 understood in the direction of his cause in the world. Mm-hmm. And so uh Christ, the incarnation and crucifixion themselves become hospitable to a vast diversity of God-given particularity. And so when Jesus breaks through the barriers of sin and death and opens a path to the spirit. Voila, at Pentecost, we find in the spirit hospitality to all languages and tongues Mm -hmm. and peoples, opening up the messianic mission, opening up the table of the Mm -hmm. messianic mission to everyone in all of their particularity and all of their uniqueness to understand their participation at that table in a way that cherishes that particularity and find specific meaning in it, but mm-hmm. now uh, directed all directed towards Christ's uh, liberating story, but in a variety of very unique ways uh, and particularized ways. Yeah. So the hospitality of Pentecost is rooted in the hospitality of the incarnation and the cross. Mm. Yeah, I love that, I, and I think the the line from Surlay that I was recalling just a moment ago is that Jesus cut loose from the old Testament becomes a sentimental figure, mm. a sentimental figure. And then, and then in that context, she says, you know, a bare outline. So I, I think that's, that's telling, right? So the point about Peter Wagner, which obviously you already are aware of is I think he kind of reinvents the evangelical mission. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say he's the face of this change. He's not the only one, but man, he has enormous influence, enormous reach, especially in the, what what is called third wave movements, right? Part of that's his position at Fuller. Part of that is just, he networked uh, astoundingly well. You know, he got connected with so many different movers and shakers. I mean, he was one of my teachers when I was doing a master's degree. Mm. Um, And, so I, I don't know that he was a thought leader, but he was such a networker. He popularized a lot of notions and kind of got it into the bloodstream of evangelicalism broadly that Christ does 
save us in our particularity, but we can't, essentially, we can't live together in that particularity. And it's what led, I think, to, like, and you and I have discussed this before, but it's astounding to me that the Pentecostal movement is diverse in a way that very few Pentecostal churches are. Right. And, and that the evangelical movement is diverse in a way that few evangelical churches or ministries or schools can be. And what what is that? Right. It seems my read of it, at least, is that the broad movement of the spirit is one thing. And when we work it down under our control, it becomes another thing. Right. Yes. And w- with if we if we focus, for example, on this Pentecost as this hospitality, this movement of hospitality, there is incredible diversity and integration and cross-pollination and, again, hospitality. But when we start to bring it down to our lived lives, I think either we annihilate all that, as you were describing it, or we separate it into ultimate and penultimate categories where they where they don't touch, right? So I think what, what we see with Wagner and those around him, what kind of gets popularized there, is a way of saying, yes, all people are equal. Yes, God saves us in our particularity. But for practical purposes, missionally, you know, you have to stay in your lane and I have to stay in my lane. And that's why we get churches that are not truly integrated. They're not truly hospitable. Right. Uh, so talk about that a little bit. Do you see that same issue? And how, how would you address it? Yeah. American pragmatism for the sake of success. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You know, why wouldn't you want that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, it's Wall Street, Mm. uh, but it's not Axe. That's (laughs) that's the problem. That's the big problem there. I mean, I can understand an oppressed people who have been um, uh, excluded from, you know, mainstream white denominations uh, gathering together together. that they've been locked out. Mm-hmm. And so they gathered. I fully understand that. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. But uh, it shouldn't, it really should not be that way. And, yeah. and this is where I think Dave Daniels research is so important because he's showing how black Pentecostals early on invited whites into their congregations who came with open hearts, yeah. uh, who did not come to take over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But, but who, 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 you know, like Miroslav Wolf talks about, you know, those who come with a willingness to change yeah, and to, and to open, just and respectful, um, uh, fellowship mm-hmm. uh, with others. And Dave Daniels shows in his research that, uh, black Pentecostalism from early on, uh, invited and had white participation in their services. That's right. Yeah. And I recall uh, Jerry Shepard years mm. ago when he was a professor of mine at Union Seminary. Uh, he was having a conversation once with Ithiel Clemens, who I got to know in those days. He was a magnificent uh, uh, man of God and and uh, elder brother to me. He was like a father figure to me, actually. Mm. He was one of the exalted 12 in the Church of God in Christ. And Jerry Shepard decided to get ordination in the Church of God in Christ. Wow. And Ithiel Clemens said to him, this is significant. Yeah. He said, because we need you. Mm-hmm. And more like you. Yeah. Because we are beholden to Pentecost. Wow. And I never forgot 
what he said to Jerry on that day. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and so uh, it's our fault, you know, as 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 you know, historic white denominations, mm-hmm. the situation exists. Yeah. Um, but to lift it up as the pragmatic key to success. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother level. It's it's and and of course, as you've suggested already. For Wagner, at least, that is tied to a kind of racism that's problematic in a whole other way. So it's pragmatic and yeah. racist, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> but that's right. but I, I do think, David, I want you to weigh in here, but I, I do think there's a way in which we, you made an important point there that I don't want us to lose, that there are those communities that, like Seymour, of course, as you know, like toward the end of his life, he he brackets out those whites who are trying to take over the mission. Yeah, that's right. understandable. Like, I don't, I don't think there's any, any shame right. in that action. Right. So that's we're right. not talking here. Like not everyone bears equal responsibility for what happened or what needs to happen next. Right. That's and right. It, we need more people like Jerry Shepard taking that initiative. Dave, why, why don't you jump in here at this point? You, you're, you're going to bring a different perspective, both in terms of scholarship, but also, you know, you live in the UK mm. and then, now we're in Canada. So it's a slightly different conversation for you than it is for us, I think, who are stateside. But I'd love to hear what you thought, what you think. Well, I'm fascinated by the by where the conversation well, I'm fascinated with the whole conversation, but I'm fascinated by where the conversation started in scripture. And I, you know, that the you know, there was a there was a drive by Galatians mention that I want to reel you back into at some point because because I'd really be curious in some of your thoughts on that. But but let me throw this in. There's two things that are floating around for me which are curious. One, I think again, and I'm not the expert in here, but I'm just throwing this out. We'd love to see what you think of this. I think there's a misreading of scripture that that simply comes from starting about three verses too late, right? Which is, uh, I'm convinced that Genesis 11 is shaping so much of this dialogue. So, you know, and I, I'm, I'm even going right back to my Sunday school experience. You know, the earth had one language, right? So there's Genesis 11, one, which I think, I think has, has put into particularly those of us from your kind of quote unquote Bible based backgrounds. We think that therefore that's where we should end up again. So, so mm-hmm. colonizing yeah. is, is, is the end point, despite yeah. the fact that quite literally two verses earlier, you have this nations descended from Noah who are all speaking their own languages. So the Genesis 11, they all spoke one language is the brokenness of the beginning of this story. Uh, and, and this is humanity's attempt to normalize. I, this is how I'm reading Genesis 11. Anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I think because we start there, not at chapter 10, verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 31, there's almost a, a, a bad but biblical defense to why hospitality has to involve normalizing because we see that as ultimately doing creation's work. So we're blind to the texts that you mentioned in Revelation because we can't see how we, if we end up with multiple tribes, this is to fail at returning us to an Eden state. I mean, does that resonate? But that's what I'm feeling in, in, in this sort of conversation. Oh, yeah. I, I think that uh, connects very well with everything we've been saying. Uh, so I appreciate that very much. And my mind is also going over to Acts 17, where you've got this, mm. well, the, all these various peoples are, yeah. um, you know, God is providing for them. He's setting the boundaries of their yeah. lands. He's uh, uh, allotting times and seasons, 
for them and why is he doing all this so that they would seek after God and mm-hmm. perhaps find him. And um, I, I heard this phrase from uh, Monty Lee Rice that I liked a lot, will their way to Pentecost mm-hmm. um, and, and to the hospitality of the nations that the presence of the spirit opens up. And, and so I think, yeah, that dovetails nicely, I think, with Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Acts mm. 17, mm. which completes the story. It was supposed to complete the story. It's yes. eschatologically directed. Yeah. So then your comments about hospitality, certainly I'm just going to keep push on this a little bit, if you don't mind. So I'm fascinated by um, – so like disclosure of the background of this question that I, I, I thought a lot about hospitality in relation to Galatians uh, when mm-hmm. I was doing some of my doctoral work. And I'm what's really interesting to me is how hospitality in in its traditional context, around about the time of Paul, you've got like people like Plutarch writing about how in order for hospitality to work, somebody has to actually, the, the person who's being hospitable has to put down their own claims on honor and set aside the conflict over status in order to welcome someone at the table who normally we would be in some sort of conflict with. And I found that a beautiful way to think about hospitality, to be present to the idea that most of our social interactions are an attempt to win status, where the powerful tries to impose their status on the other. And so where I'd love to kind of just, because I am curious to what you have to say on this, I think it's fascinating that after Paul introduces his sort of seminal statement in Galatians 3, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, he then refers to himself as a mother. He calls us to be slaves to one another. He doesn't He doesn't do away with those, quote unquote, inferior categories. He actually welcomes them to the table, still in that sense of identity. But I don't hear, I hear Galatians 3 used more in the way that you were talking about earlier to, to normalize and to, to bring a singularity. Excellent. That that's exactly my way of thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you know, so many people take Paul in uh, Galatians three twenty seven that we all put on Christ, mm-hmm. uh, and then there is neither Jew nor Greek, uh, male nor female, bond nor free. Mm-hmm. As once you put on Christ, all other particularity is dissolved. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not at all what he means. What mm-hmm. he's talking about there is. Uh, the ways in which those categories were used as markers in society to determine privilege mm-hmm. uh, and to uh, uh, determine um, uh, domination. So, you know, the hierarchy of privilege, like in Jewish society, it would, at the very top, it would be the circumcised male. And then beneath that, the female, and mm-hmm. she gains her social influence and privilege from either her father or her husband. And then beneath that, the uh, Gentile male and Gentile female, and then the servants who are male and the servants who are female. And that's the hierarchy of privilege and influence and power. And what Paul seems to be saying is that in the spirit, having put on Christ, that whole hierarchy just falls like a house of cards. Mm-hmm. Um, it no longer determines. 
mm. one's privilege or yeah. influence in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that these distinctions don't matter, right? Have any significance to a person's sense of self and and how that person incorporates um, uh, is incorporated into Christ's mission and how they understand that mission. Uh, but any use of this to exclude or to um, secure privilege is disallowed. Yeah. And I think that if I could jump in for just a second, I think that's, you know, my, my kind of um, opaque comments about Wagner and McGavern and the church growth movement. I mean, it's rude. Two things for those who aren't kind of up to speed on all that conversation. I don't, I don't want to slide past that too quickly because I think the point you're making here and that David is bringing up, like it's, it's worth us kind of slowing down to the speed of this story to let people catch on. So let, let me talk just for a moment about, so what McGavern does, who's kind of the father of the church growth movement that Wagner popularizes, right. And, and then connects to what will become now is called the new apostolic reformation. So Wagner is kind of a bridge figure between the evangelicalism that McGavern popularizes, which is rooted in Billy Graham conversionism, like all of that, that then gets brought into the charismatic world broadly through Wagner and, and others. It's, it's rooted in a couple of things that I think for a lot of people seem just so obvious. They're unquestionable. One is that evangelism is all that really matters. And all that really matters in evangelism is as many conversions as possible, as quickly as possible. Right. Yeah. right. So American pragmatism makes perfect sense because the point is nothing else matters so long as you're winning people to Jesus as quickly as possible and as many as possible, right? What McGa- So if you start with that assumption, McGavern says, well, there are a couple things we know. Like, people don't enjoy worshiping across racial, ethnic lines. They don't enjoy worshiping across class distinctions. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they want to feel safe and they want their kids to feel safe with the other people that they're in church with. So he, I mean, he just, I mean, he says this outright, right? Like they, you don't want to worship with people who look different from you, whose tax bracket is different from yours. And the goal is to win people to Jesus. So you have a choice. I mean, he says essentially outright, you've got a choice. You can either have an integrated church, which is going to be hard work. It's going to be constant pastoral headache, or you can just forget all that. And get a bunch of people converted and let the kingdom of God in the end sort all that out. And then Wagner comes along and says, yes, and if you talk about any of those issues, social justice issues, racial, ethnic differences, if you if you deal with questions about poverty and working working conditions, if you talk about immigration, you will undercut church growth. So not only can you not have it in your church, you can't talk about it in your church because the only thing that matters is winning people. So what you called early on a kind of Christological totalitarianism where it's Christ and he obliterates everything else. Mm -hmm. Like somehow in American evangelicalism that got melded with a kind of commitment to evangelism as just winning as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. Never mind what we're winning them to. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind what kind of shape they're taking. But I, I, I think in the process, of course, we end up misreading these texts so so badly. So I, I want I want to make sure we don't move too fast past that point. That there's no way actually to imagine 
the life Christ has called us to, if we don't understand not only that he doesn't obliterate our humanity, but fulfills it, right? The spirit rests on all of this diversity at Pentecost, but also that the what it means to be the church is a long, slow process that is a kind of constant pastoral headache. Thank and the, the goal isn't simply get as many people as possible signed up as quickly as possible. So I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that ecclesiological and missiological side of this conversation. And, and that's exactly how we have to frame it. Um, ecclesiological mm-hmm. and missiological because uh, evangelism has very much to do with ecclesiology. Uh, and that's the, that's the point mm-hmm. Wagner just doesn't care about. It's just yeah. for him, it's just a bunch of individuals who are converted to Jesus and uh, the church serves a purely utilitarian function to uh, sort of facilitate as many individuals connecting to Jesus as you possibly can. Yeah. And if the church fails miserably to reflect the hospitality of faith as God wills it, well, who cares about that? Who cares about the church? <laughs> right. just, Absolutely, yes. Yeah. It's just a tool to get as many individuals saved as you can. And um, here's where I think the story of Acts 10 is so significant uh, because it wasn't Paul called to the Gentile household, the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul himself says in Galatians 2 that his agreement with the pillars of the Church of Jerusalem is that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles and Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Mm. And here is what makes the fact that it's Peter that is sent by God to the household of Cornelius. Mm. Not Paul, not yeah. Paul, but Peter. Because Peter needed Cornelius as much as Cornelius needed him. Mm-hmm. And God converts him yes. to his cause among the Gentiles mm. and to how radical that had to be for the lines that Peter instinctively wanted to draw. Mm. Mm. And God says, erase those lines. Don't call unclean what I call clean. Yeah. Exactly. And so Peter, uh, I like to say, that Peter was converted along with Cornelius. Mm. They were both converted to Christ and to each other. Um, And uh, so that evangelism is never just individuals connecting Mm. to Christ. Mm -hmm. The church just becomes the tool used in that connection. And so whatever works, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Conversion is both vertical and horizontal. It's 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 you you can't have evangelism in the biblical sense of the term if walls are not falling between people. Mm-hmm. Mm. Man, um, and, and Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians two: Christ is our reconciliation, who brought together Jew and Gentile in his in himself. Yeah, yeah. And he is the point of reconciliation between us. Mm -hmm. So in converting to Christ, we convert to each other. Mm. So I would say to Wagner in an all-white church, this is not happening. No. No. Not to the point where it needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to be the witness to the larger society of what the the new humanity should look like. Mm. And if we look like the world with, you know, all white churches that don't 
invite anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this. We're, we're not being the witness that we need to be. So, I mean, there's mm-hmm. so much wrong with what Wagner's doing. Yeah. That it, 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 you, you have to d- discuss it like on four different levels. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly right. Well, and it's not an accident, Frank. You know, I know you, we're on the same page here, you and I, David too, I think, that there was for a while after the 2016 election cycle and all kind of all that spun out from Trump's election. And that's led to this conversation about Christian nationalism, you know, in the, in the aftermath of it, I, I think, a lot of people were surprised. Like, how did we get from where we were in the eighties and nineties to where we are now? But there's a straight line because as soon as you say being the church doesn't matter, like the the work of being formed into a people of witness to this kingdom that is not of this world doesn't matter. Then of course you're not only reinforcing privilege and social difference. You're also saying that your loyalty, yes, Jesus can save my soul but my life belongs to this way of life that I care most about. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is, I'm already, you know, one way of talking about this is Christ obliterates all of that. But another way is that means I can do whatever I want with that part of my life. Mm. Right. I, I can give my body to the market or to the nation state or to a, an, any ideology or set of practices that gives me meaning I can do that as a Christian without any any sense that the gospel speaks to it. I mean, once our churches stop speaking to issues of economics and race, our justice is no longer social. All that means is those injustices never get confronted. They never never get named. And I, I love your you know attending to Acts ten, David. Why don't you why don't you weigh in on this point about Acts because I think this is <laughs> and Willie Jennings agrees by the way. He thinks Acts ten is like the that's the crucial ground on which this has to be worked out. Well, I <laughs> I want to weigh in on all the things, but um, <laughs> just, and I also need to say the record. Yes, I, I do agree with both of you on uh, what you were saying. I want to put that on the record. But the um, can, can I can I read Acts ten and nine and actually eight as well through the lens of what Paul does in Galatians six fifteen, right? And this to me is. Uh, well, and, and let me preface this by saying, ultimately, this is a conversation about empire, and because the the move of empire is what we see in Babel, right? If we see we're gonna we're gonna normalize how people are, and yeah. we're gonna build a big tower, and I, I mean, like you know, I mean, forgive my foreignness is apparent here, but when I read that, I'm like, America, anyone? Um, you know, we're going to normalize the language and we're going to build big towers and show everyone that we're better. And where I think we've struggled, and I, I say this from as, as a biblical scholar, that, the, that we miss, I think, what Paul's doing in Galatians 6.15. Neither, you know, we basically, for uncircumcision and circumcision are not things, right? What is a thing is new creation where lion and lamb, you know, this is only the second, the the only one of the two times that Paul cites directly this Isaiah, you know, new creation imagery where lion and lamb are now equal. Somehow they, they, they don't, you know, they somehow hold this differentiation, but now they can dwell in each other's space. But what I think we've often done is we just keep shifting categories. So, you know, well, circumcision is the thing. That's the argument in Galatians. But what we've done, I think, in in post-Reformation period is we've been, oh, okay, we were wrong. Circumcision was the thing. Actually, 
uncircumcision is the thing, right? <laughs> That's the ideal case. And Paul, I think, is tearing his hair out beyond the grave going, no, this conversation, to use John Barclay's language, is bankrupt, right? Like, why are we still talking in these categories? And once you release them from being things, you can meet at the table whether circumcised or uncircumcised. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I think that, I, so like, I can't agree more with what we see going on in Acts 10 is this is this resistance that we don't turn Acts 2 into Genesis 11, right? And it's in our hearts is to, is to build empire and to normalize, to make, you know, but, but this is this resistance to why are we trying to deal in bankrupted categories? Not that they don't exist, but that we've applied weight and meaning to those categories, which are anathema to the gospel. Uh, and, and, and I can't help but think, you know, this, is, this has been one of Britain's legacies to the world, is to insist on a colonialist mindset on everything, that, that we will ultimately always end up saying to Cornelius, no, I'm sorry, uh, like, this is not going to work for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, my... My my thoughts are swimming. I I, I agree with you entirely. <laughs> I I love the way you weaved Babel and uh, uh, Babel and uh, Empire into it. Mm. Um, yes, uh, Pentecost is not to become a new Babel uh, where you have dominant uh, categories gaining ascendance mm. and determining where the other ones fit in. Uh, and Pentecost doesn't do that. I mean, this, the, mm. the, the narrative of Acts 2 just resists that. Um, another thing that comes to mind is that um, all of these tongues, all of these tongues that are understood in the languages of mm. the world, um, these are largely a Galilean group here mm. speaking these tongues. So the, the, the wonderful vision has not yet been concretized or incarnated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Acts 10 is a valuable step in that direction. I mean, it's one thing for Galileans to be speaking Gentile tongues. It's quite another for them to be doing it with Gentiles. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's what you start getting with Acts 10, is that the beautiful vision of Pentecost now goes from potent symbolization Mm. to incarnation. Yes. To to this becoming a concrete ecclesial reality, yeah. um, and um, that I find enormously important. So what I see, maybe the, the church today can see itself as part of this program. That is, take the vision of Pentec- the, the the hospitality symbolized in Acts two, and incarnate it. Yeah, that that's what the church is supposed to do. Mm. And Wagner comes along and he's throwing a wrench right in the middle of that mm-hmm. um, and and basically trying to derail it. Yeah. I think it's a pretty serious matter. I, but I, I, I also like the point about how Acts 10 prevents us from distorting Pentecost into a new Babel. Mm. So holding that, that sort of tension there, like, because I... I I think that, like, I love what you're saying, and and so I want to tease more of that out, if that's okay. That that, like, could you on this hospitality and empire, 
right? These two things are opposed to us. But yes. but I, you know, again, I feel like this is not. You following Chrissy's earlier comment? Like, let let's stay in this for a little while because I think there's something I would say even in our hearts, if we you know really lean into the Babel story, that resists this. But the empire and hospitality are opposing ideas, and when. You know, when when we talk about Wagner's work and and and, and this, we, we really are in the category of empire, and and I think there's a resistance still, though, because because of many of our histories, we're going, yeah, but if people are coming to Jesus, that must be okay, um, and 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 I'd love to hear you just really nail that down for anyone that's listening about how you know coming to Jesus via the mechanism of empire is is dubious at best and and definitely not hospitable or maybe you want to disagree with me on that but i feel like that's where we're at isn't it exactly and no i agree entirely uh and here is where i think ecclesiology um needs to play a more significant role in our understanding of evangelism um so that you can't end up with a merely utilitarian ecclesiology in the service of um, this, um, you know, uh, c- cultural separation. So mm-hmm. it, it, so as long as you're winning more individuals to Jesus, um, who cares if the church fails utterly mm-hmm. to incarnate the vision of Pentecost or to bear witness of it before the world? None of that matters mm-hmm. because salvation is just an individual matter anyway. And if, if, if you, if you, if you distort your ecclesiology to win more people to Jesus, well, who cares? Just Mm -hmm. results, numbers is all that matters. Mm -hmm. And so much, so much of our critique of formalism, so much of our anti-Catholic sentimental sentiment and our anti-Jewish sentiment is rooted in that. It's rooted in this idea that that form of life doesn't really matter compared to results compared yeah. to getting yeah. outcomes. And it, it's a, it, you know, I listened to the rest is history podcast and they did a four part series a couple weeks ago on Columbus. And it, it's fascinating. I mean, it's just an entry point. Obviously there's a lot more to the story than what they can cover even in four episodes. But what, the, one of the things that's haunted me is they, they read Tom Holland is one of the, one of the hosts and Tom read from one of Columbus's letters to Ferdinand and Isabella about what he was going to do in this discovery. Now, now of course he's fully convinced and remains convinced all of his life that he's going to discover a way to China and Japan, Hmm. but set that aside for now. Anyway, in the letter, he tells them, you know, this, this is going to be a way in which we're going to advance the kingdom of God and bring incredible prosperity to Spain. This is going to be a victory for commerce and the church. And I think when at the risk of oversimplification, I think that at the heart of this colonial, you know, before there was a British empire, when the Portuguese and Spain are setting the agenda for what will be the colonialist enterprise, that's the idea. The idea is we can do something where we dominate other people for their good and ours, build the church. And become incredibly prosperous. Yes, that's right. And so when we're singling someone out like like Wagner, I mean, these are not new ideas. It's the same old idea right. that what we call the West was built upon. And I think part of one of 
I think David, you put your finger on it. The it's hard for us to repent of that because we see so much good having come from it. We think that the bad therefore could not have been that bad. Mm-hmm. If the, if the good is mm-hmm. America and freedom and flags and churches of 20,000 people and a missional reach around the world and et cetera, et cetera. I almost said some really smart aleck things, but I stopped myself <laughs> from doing it. But, but I mean, I think that's it. Like we can't imagine a success on this scale, not somehow being providential. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. right. And, and that to me betrays an imagination that has not been Christoformed. Mm-hmm. Like when, when you're thinking like that, right. I, I think that it's easy sometimes to talk about empire and lose what we mean, but it seems to me that, if our imaginations are shaped by the story of this man, Jesus, then the scale of success is just never going to impress us. Mm-hmm, that's right. Right. Any more than the scales of the walls of the temple impressed him. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit, Frank, just about how, how did we lose that cruciform imagination? I mean, I, I have, I have a sense of it, but I'd like to hear you talk about, how have we come to think that scale and success somehow are markers of providential guidance and sovereign approval? Yeah, uh, here, here's where I join with my Mennonite brothers and sisters and say, well, it starts with the Constantinian Imperial Church. Hmm. I mean, what irony that the empire that crucified the Messiah is now um, an adjective to be placed on the church, the imperial church. The very same empire that crucified Jesus now defines his church. There's something Mm. drastically wrong with that. (laughs) And um, when you look back at the book of Acts, when you look back at the actual events of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, you don't have flag waving. You don't have any of those kinds of, of, you know, empire dreams. Um, you have his followers hiding in fear because they could be crucified next and Jesus yeah. appearing before them. And, and prior to his death, sharing the meal yeah. in which he asks them to remember him precisely as the one who gave his body and his blood mm-hmm. for the cause of God's love in the world. And you have people gathered around a table, breaking bread and drinking wine in in remembrance of Christ laying down his life at the hands of a brutal empire. This is where Christianity begins. There's no flag waving. There's no empire building. There's no courting the powers that be in order to succeed. Uh, you have a very different story being told. And I think that uh, we really do need to make it clear to our churches the contrast between how Christianity actually begins mm-hmm. and, and what it's become. Yeah. And, and, and just state that contrast as clearly as we can to get people to start thinking again in a cruciform direction. Yeah. Well, one of the problems, and I mean, David's a pastor and you're a pastor. David's a professor and you're a professor. I mean, I've 
like both of you, I mean, I've spent my adult life both in the church and the academy. And one of the things that has frightened me, troubled me for a very long time is that our, our allergy to theology in preaching and to theology in the work of worship and discipleship and mission is that we've, we've effectively, in many of our circles, we've effectively bracketed out talk about God and we talk about ourselves, you know, and we, you know, I was last night on another conversation and saying, you know, there's the problem is not that we're, we're just not talking about God very much. And we haven't for a very long time, mm-hmm. right? We talk about how God is useful for what we want or think needs to be done. But if you pay attention to, if you just do a kind of index of what gets said and sung in most of our churches over the last 50 years, there's a whole lot about improving the quality of our lives. There's a whole lot about becoming better people, individuals. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot about marriages. There's a whole lot about revival and saving saving America, at least here in the States. There's a whole lot of talk about you know, getting the best out of life. And of course that comes, I think as a, a re kind of swing in the other direction from all that talk about rapture and I'll fly away. You know, there, there's a, a kind of otherworldliness that overcorrects into a wild disworldliness. Yeah, that's right. But for a long time, we just haven't talked about the God who is father, son, and spirit, right? The God who in the flesh dies on the cross, who, is sweating drops of blood in the garden. The, the, the stories of the martyrs, the, the stories of the apostles who are suffering these, these estrangements, the fracturing of their family ties, the, the ways in, I mean, Peter and Paul, their stories are not stories of, of success, really. I mean, the book of Acts, we love to preach. We have for a long time, love to preach. You know, the book of Acts doesn't really end because the spirit is still moving. But I mean, Paul is in a really anguished state at the end. Like, like when he's that, those last words out of his mouth are hard words yeah, about true. how this mission to the synagogue has failed. And I, I'm not even sure they're faithful words, but there's a way it feels almost like he's given up on his own people in a way that's just heartbreaking. Right. Mm-hmm. But whatever they are, they're certainly not easy words. They're not glib words. Right. And I, I think we've kind of been, for a long time now, adrift because we don't trust that talking about God is enough. That preaching about God's character and God's nature is enough. That talking about Jesus is enough. So I, I you know, both as a senior theologian in our tradition, Frank, and, and as a pastor, like how do we turn that? I mean, is it simply a matter of, Hey, start talking about God and praying to God and not, and I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah. Uh, Chris, the gospel cannot be a self-help philosophy. Yeah. And, yeah. and once you reduce it to that, um, you, you, you just uh, cheapen the gospel. And there is where I think, uh, you know, preaching and teaching needs to make that distinction clear as well. Uh, I mean, sure. Uh, devotion to Jesus Christ can can heal relationships, mm-hmm. but there's something larger at stake here, uh, and that is the cause of Christ in the world. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, 
the, the, the leaders of the Christian movement are suffering great uh, abandonment, pain, anguish, the dissolution of their ties um, in order to join the cause of Christ in the world. And countless others have suffered the same things. And um, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of priorities. Uh, if it's really Christ first and Christ's cause in the world, um, and that's really our thinking, uh, then we are willing to suffer any cost to do what Christ has laid in our hands to do. And there's a, there's a place for talking about healing of fractured relationships, but within the yeah. cause of Christ, within mm-hmm. the fulfillment of that mission and not just as an end in itself, mm-hmm. uh, you can't reduce the gospel to a self-help philosophy. You just, without making us the major topic, the major issue. Yeah. And I I mean, I'm going to have David ask a a final question here, but that that, I come back to what Dorothy Surley said about Jesus cut off from the old Testament or what Bart would say, Jesus, who's not a Jew. Like that's just a sentimental figure. That's just a, a reflection of your own face, your own agenda. And in, in which you're 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 calling it Jesus, but it's really your own image, your own ideology. And I, I think that's Israel's story is a story of a people called to bless all the nations of the earth, but to live in this movement of following the God who's on the way. I mean, I, I think that's the, the faith of Abraham is a pilgrim faith. This is what Hebrews is all about. I think the book of Hebrews mm-hmm. that we here we have no lasting city. We look for a city whose builder and maker is God, a city not made with hands, right? That's These right. all died in faith, having not seen the promise. That's right. And this is, with all the things, all the criticism I have of the Pentecostal movement, I think this is where we were at our truest. There was a time where we did have this sense. And I think we had it because we were in the room with people who were living it. Yeah, that's right. You know, when William Seymour takes his head out of the shoebox long enough to talk to us about being a pilgrim people. It means something. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because he and his people have lived that. That's right. Right. But when we, when those things become museum pieces to us, when it's not, when, when generation after generation, we're sitting in churches and schools and homes where all of that stuff is, it's, it's layered in our memory. It's glossy as an achievement, you know, the Pentecostal movement was racially integrated. Well, that's nothing to celebrate if that's not the reality we're living now. Exactly. If there's not blood, sweat, and tears in our experience of it now, then all of that is just abstraction. It's self-congratulation that keeps us from the actual experience of being that pilgrim people, the the people who are on the way. And I, I think the what I appreciate so much, Frank, about what you what you do, what you embody, and what you teach, what you write, what you say in conversation, is you're calling us back to the Jesus of the cross. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I just yesterday or the day before referenced that piece you wrote about the the cross as the place where the spirit flows. Right, the spirit flows from, and of course, you're drawing on. Seymour and and other early Pentecostals there. So I, I I want to thank you for that. I mean for that witness. It's it's not, and you you've done it in crucial moments. You did it right after nine eleven in that piece that you published 
about praying for the terrorists. You, you've done it again and again for me personally and for us um, as a movement. So thank you for that, Frank. David, I'll let you wrap us up here with a final question or comment. Mm, yeah, I, um, I, <laughs> I'm thinking about, uh, I have a friend, and I say this with sarcasm here, I have a friend who's been pushing me towards uh, reading more Maximus the Confessor, and I don't know if anybody might know who that friend might be, but, but, but I was, I was, I was leading, reading his piece just last week on the ecclesiastical mystagogy, and, his, and it strikes me when he's talking about this, this uh, you know, and Chris, you might want to fill in my question here, but here's where I'm going, and then you can clarify it. He's talking about this layout of of the of the church and the, the sanctuary and the nave and the altar, and how this is, if I'm understanding him correctly, on earth as it is in heaven. That, that yeah, in the yeah. middle of all this, you have this altar where Jesus is, is right. Um, and as we're having this conversation here, I am struck. I was talking to some people about about Maximus the other day there, and I sketched out what I think he's saying. And it struck me that as if I overlaid the modern Western North American church onto Maximus's model, the space that he says, look here, the altar where Christ is holding all things together in that space in the modern church is a white man <laughs> preaching sermons about all the things you've talked about here about self-help. And so no wonder this model's falling apart on us, even though we're not aware of the fact the model. So I suppose my question, Frank, and, and I'd love you to, to, you know, speak to, and even give us some prompting as to where do we go? And like, practically, it seems to me the whole conversation could be summarized as a failure of liturgy, uh, a failure to actually, when we gather as God's people, to provide a liturgy that leads us away from empire and even leads us away, leads us in a way that we recognize empire and and, and holds us together in Christ. Um, so, like that would be kind of what I wanted to ask, Chris. Like, make sense of that question if you want to. Um, but that's kind of where I'd love to hear to kind of bring this into land. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I know there are folks who are talking about a Pentecostal altar theology, hmm. which sees the altar as the place where the saints gather to seek a renewal of Pentecost. But we have to keep in mind that that altar belongs first to him, mm-hmm. where he gave his life yeah. um, uh, f- for, the, for the world where he emptied himself out for the cause of God's love in the world. And if there's going to be a Pentecostal altar theology and a Pentecostal mm-hmm. liturgy around that, it's got to be around him. Mm-hmm. Um, Romans 12, that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices in and through him and in his image um, there is no altar theology. There is no liturgy. There is no church service that doesn't have that focal point um, of conforming to the crucified Christ. There's no no room for empire there. Yeah, just demolishes it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you know, I think just a, a a theologizing that is constantly pointing us back to uh, the crucified 
mm-hmm. Christ. I, I, there's no other way I could put it. And seeing that not as a one-time means to setting us relationally right with God, mm-hmm, but right. as the only way in which God works in the world. That's right. Exactly. Th- this is what God's work in the world yes. looks like. Right? Yes. It's not. Yes. I mean, th- th- that's one of the ironies, right, is that American evangelicalism has talked a lot about the death of Jesus, but it's as a mechanism Yes. In a writing of our relationship to God that has nothing to do with the way God works in the world. Right. So the weakness of the cross was necessary to show us something and, and to win the father's forgiveness. But we don't think of that as a revelation of how God's work yeah. in the world happens. Yes. And that's where the logic of Romans is so important because you've got, you know, from chapter, uh, from the early chapters all the way through chapter five, uh, this, uh, you know, towering doctrinal reflections on atonement yeah. and justification and, you know, Christ and Adam and how that sets up the, the, the paradigms and then into the significance of baptism and then on to uh, retelling the whole narrative of Israel and the nations. And then finally, chapter 12, you are to put yourself on the altar as living sacrifices so that this towering doctrine of atonement, by the time you reach chapter 12, becomes an invitation. Mm -hmm. Uh, An invitation that uh, covers the entire life of an individual. Yeah. in terms of how they conceive of themselves and of their life mission. And if you read it that way, and I love that reading, then then 14 and 15, where he's calling them to certain, well, and 13, where he's calling them to certain orientation to one another. Yeah, that's right. Is, you see, that's that's been what his, his goal all along. You know, so he's he's writing toward 14 and 15. Here's how you should be treating each other. Yeah, that's right. right. You live to the Lord, you die to the Lord. They're they're not your slave. They answer to the Lord. Exactly. Right? All all of this theology is providing him and helping them see the what they need to see in order to live that life that's sketched in 14 and 15. And we can't live that life because we've we've taken pieces bits and pieces of the theology that leads to 14 and 15, right? Or we've isolated a passage from Romans 13 or a passage from Romans six or a passage from Romans four and not seeing, no, 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 this, this is the way God works in the world. And it looks like this ecclesiologically and missionally. Mm. It looks like these kinds of sacrificial participations in his self-denial and his patience in his, in his self-offering to go back to the, to the language. I, I think I think that is exactly right. And can I don't miss in that Romans 16, right? Yeah. And so, so like Romans 16 gets missed a lot in this because, although Paul's not just listing names, but, but look at what he's doing. He is highlighting the labors of women. <laughs> he's highlighting the work of slaves, right? So, so you're seeing him now take all of this that we've just almost bringing us back to where we started. You know, look at what he says about Phoebe. You know, give her the fellowship of the Lord, welcome her, support her business. You need her help, right? As a woman, right? And, you know, not, not as a woman become a man, you know? And then we get this. So, so I think we see this list in, in 16 and think, oh, this is just a list of names. 
But if we pay attention to this list of names, it is the it is the list of people evidencing Paul's commitment to what he's been talking about, about preserving, you know, and not normalizing everybody into the sort of one category. Sorry to jump in on that, but I, I think you know, it's like Paul saying, you know, this is what the new cruciform humanity looks like. Yes. You know. So I, we we we'd said we were going to stop, but like a good Pentecostal sermon, we're not we're not quite done, right? We're we're going to have another. I, I want to say, you know, Frank, for for folks who are listening to this, perhaps perhaps they're leaders, pastors, or just lay persons who are kind of at at a loss. I'm not even sure where they stand in relation to their faith because of this. I mean, because as, as you know, like there are so many people who are either caught inside the mechanism of this kind of, I hate to call it church. I mean, I, I said recently in a lecture almost by accident and then I realized that's what I think. I think a lot of what we call church is actually just parachurch ministry mm. that has now eaten up the whole structure of the church. We're just doing one ministry and calling that church, right? Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think I think what's happened is the machinery of our ministries, it's it's eating up our people and especially the people who have to keep it working. Mm. Right, it's devouring our ministers, right? And so, so much of what's getting called broadly deconstruction now is what happens when you don't have church; you just have ministries, mm. where you don't have a, a gathering, a liturgy, where we come to Him, where we mm. come to Him, right, mm. and are renewed in His image. We're just constantly running, trying to make our stuff work, right? So, I, I love really to end to have you talk to to those who are kind of just weary with all that either because they're caught in the machinery or they've been spit out by it where do we begin i mean how do we start that renewal process to will to go back to monty's phrase to will our way toward pentecost exactly that that uh, i love the way you put that chris uh, that uh, the parachurch ministries has eaten up the entire Ecclesia, and um, we're looking at the church in the wrong way. It's not just a place of ministries. Uh, It's not. And, um, yeah, I do think uh, we need to get church right. Um, We need to um, think in a more theologically responsible and faithful way about what church is and what its significance is. Because, I mean, that's how you correct Wagner. Yeah, you know that 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 really at the core of what he's doing there is not only a an abstract Christ and a totalitarian annihilationism, but a really bad ecclesiology. Yes, yes, and 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 destructive one. Yes, and the, the more I'm thinking about this, the more I realize that ecclesiology might be the new hotspot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for a, a theological reflection. Because then it takes you back to the roots in the uh, incarnation and atonement and reconfiguring those in a way that sets up Pentecost Mm. and then seeing the church uh, through that lens and understanding things like uh, charisma and sacrament um, as core to what is happening in the church and what that's supposed to be doing as what we're supposed to be doing as we partake of this and what we're really partaking of when we partake of this, you know, and, uh, uh, 
you know, the cross is calling us and we, we participate in this invitation with every time, with every moment we proclaim the word or share the bread and wine. Hmm. And that gets into our souls. It gets into our consciousness. It yes. defines us in ever new ways. Uh, and we need to be talking very concretely about how it does that. Uh, so, yeah, I always, as a theologian, I always go back to good theology, good preaching and teaching. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And good examples mm. uh, where we uh, exemplify in our lives what we're saying the church needs to become and then invite people to join us. Yeah. Power of example. Paul uses it a lot and it's it's quite potent, you know. Yeah, watch, David, I, watch, watch me, watch how I do it. Yeah. David, what was it you were telling me the other day about Paul, Galatians 3, you know, Christ was crucified before your very eyes. Yeah, um, I think I think there's a narrative where you can actually track the the death of Paul, but not with, you know, aware of what we've said, not dis- disagreeing with it, that you have the death of Paul, his, his enveloping into Christ. And then when Paul comes along and says, like, Christ was visually portrayed as crucified before your eyes. I, I get this sense from Paul that actually he somehow is the representation of the crucified Christ, that, that you know, that so much has he been taken up into Christ. He is this Jewish man represents to these Gentiles their freedom <laughs> while somehow seeing Christ in him. Yeah. yeah. I bear in my body the marks, but it's also, yes. and I've already yeah, yeah. in writing, it's also Eucharist. It's also mm. when that, when that bread is broken and that, and that cup is lifted, that is his body broken mm-hmm. and his blood poured out. I mean, this is the, those early Pentecostal, you know, my PhD work, as you both know, like what stunned me about all that is how their preaching about Jesus was always tied to this language of broken and poured out, mm-hmm. like the Eucharistic yeah. metaphors that just kept showing up that, you know, and, and they would then of course tie that to all kinds of other texts, including Paul saying, you know, I'm an offering, I'm an offering already poured out on the altar, right? That this, this, it was an imagination that had been sacramentalized. It had been, it had been made in the shape of the Lord's supper. And it, it, that I was just, Reading again the other day, this is so stunning to me. First Corinthians, when Paul is telling the Corinthians about the Lord coming directly to him. And he said, and I said to you what he said to me when he appeared on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. That in Paul's mind, when Christ appeared to him as a man out of season, right? A a man born out of season. The thing Jesus wanted to talk to him about first was what he did on the night of the supper. And that man i mean you think about foot washing you think about the 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 bread and wine the meal what what that means in terms of israel's story what that means for the coming kingdom that's it i mean that's what we're missing and we're missing it because our worship services have bracketed that out for a long time for a long time amen Frank, thank you for this this has been a joy as always and i know it's going to spark all kinds of responses that we'll have to do another one, which is exactly as it should be. So you'll, you'll have to come back and uh, I love you. And thank you so much. This was very enjoyable for me. I, uh, you two are such great conversation partners. Well, we'll, we'll make it a regular thing, Lord willing, sooner than later. Definitely. And we'll have you back on soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Definitely. Friend. Definitely. Thank you both. God Bye-bye. bless you.